for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found check Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Today is July 6, 2021. And today's is a little different. I actually have a podcast listener be the host. This one's going to be good. All right, all right. Welcome to the Fall Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Blasey, and today's episode is 168. And I am the co-host today. Uh, Tanner Staffy, a podcast listener from Missouri, reached out to me not too long ago and said, hey, man, I want to pick your brain on a whole bunch of hunting stuff. Uh, can I come on the podcast and talk about it? I'm like, heck yeah, let's do it. So basically today is he's got a list of questions. This is an awesome podcast, actually, by the way. Um, and he kind of takes over the hosting. I, I kind of steer the ship with him, but it's some really cool questions. I had no idea what these questions were going in. And I told him, I preempted, I said, Hey man, what I say is not the Bible. I'm just going to tell you what I would do in those scenarios and what I have done based on my experiences. That's it. So that's what we do. It's really cool. He's a new bow hunter. Um, hopefully he takes some of this and applies it and hopefully it helps out this year. So, um, I do want to say before I get over to this interview, happy late 4th of July. Hopefully everybody had a safe and fun weekend and three day weekend, hopefully. Um, but yeah, it, it, we're in the dog days of the summer here coming up right now and not a lot going on whitetail wise other than cameras are being deployed and getting inventory pictures of the velvet rut and all that stuff. So hopefully everybody out there is getting pictures of the bucks they want to see. So with that being said, let's get over this interview with Tanner and I can't wait for you guys to hear. So this is a good one. So thank you guys very much. And here's this interview with Tanner Staffy. All right. Welcome back to the fall podcast. And today's guest is Tanner Staffy from Missouri, the show me state Tanner. Thank you very much for coming on, man. And, uh, I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, yeah, me too. I, uh, you know, like you said, I'm, uh, from Missouri, the actual <laughs> very Southeast point, uh, of Missouri, right. You know, pretty close to the Arkansas state line. And I don't, I don't really know if you've ever, uh, had anybody, uh, uh south uh as far south as i am on the show um so i'm like i said i'm ready to get into it too yeah i'm excited and honestly i've i've hunted a few years in northern missouri and had some good success there but honestly when i hear you talk you got a little bit of a southern draw i you know all the people that i've come across in missouri have not really had a southern draw like you so yeah i would almost say you're from the south right i mean <laughs> yeah we are we're 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 below the line i think so the missouri river cuts uh missouri almost exactly in half um and so if you're below that you know people like to say they're from the south but man you're really not from the south until you live in southeast missouri which yep. is where i'm right in the middle of the town i'm actually from is is uh portageville okay and we are, like I said, probably 
25 to 30 minutes from the Arkansas state line. So, okay. uh, so for sure, you know, anytime I talk to, uh, quote unquote <laughs> Northerners, I get that response, <laughs> yeah. the, the Southern twang. So, yeah. Well, I guess the first question I have for you is you're in SEC country. So are you a Razorback fan or what are you? Uh, man, I'm actually a Tennessee volunteer. Fan. No kidding. Okay. I was, uh, I was actually born in Tennessee. Um, but I, I, you know, was raised in Portersville. Um, I've always kind of had that connection with Tennessee. So, uh, big fan of the, uh, the orange and white. So nice. Good deal, man. Well, cool. So today's podcast is going to be a little different. I don't, honestly, I don't know if I've really done one like this before. They all kind of blend together. No, you know, I've done so many of them now. But I'm looking forward to this. So to kind of give everybody a brief overview of like what we're going to get into today is Tanner reached out to me through social media and was like, hey, man, I want to pick your brain. Um, I'm a relatively new hunter. I want to pick your brain on what you would do on some different scenarios. And I'm like, he's, you know, said that I think it'd be a great podcast. I'm like, heck yeah, man, let's do it. So Tanner's going to kind of play host today. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll bounce back and forth. But uh, he's got a list of questions, and he's going to ask me some questions and kind of get my opinions. And I told him before this, so I'm not an expert. I'm not going to give you some answer that I've never experienced before. This is all going to come from my experiences. And if I've never been in that situation before, I'm literally going to tell you. I've never been in that situation, but if I was going into it, this is probably what I would do. Um, I don't want to lead you down a rabbit hole that, you know, give you some you know, fake knowledge that I've never done. I'm not about that. So that's kind of the dissertation of what, of what today's podcast is going to be all about. And I'm excited, man. So I guess if you're ready, let's get into this. So, uh, maybe talk about first, give us everybody an overview of like what you want to accomplish today and, and, and where you've, cause you're a new hunter, relatively right. new hunter, new bow hunter anyway. Like what, what are you looking to accomplish and, and, and what are some things that you're trying, some voids you're trying to fill, I guess. Right. Um, so like you stated, I'm relatively new to the, the bow hunting, uh, aspect of hunting. Um, just to give like a, you know, a brief overview of my background, you know, I, I, I've hunted since I was six years old and I was just a typical, uh, gun hunter. And so that limited me to, you know, youth season and rifle season here in Missouri. And um, anybody from Missouri that uh, hears this knows, uh, you know, that rifle season here in Missouri falls right in the middle of the rut. So, you know, typically I've grown up with uh, fairly decent uh, gun hunts. Um, But what I'm looking uh, to get out of these questions that I'm asking you today is just I want to get that edge um, the, the piece that, uh, we're going to be discussing, like the scenarios I'm going to place, uh, you in are, um, it's a permission land piece. Um, I mean, it's privately owned. There's one landowner and his dad was a good friend of my grandpa. So that's how we became, uh, I guess, uh, I guess how that's how we came to, uh, hunting this land and um, I've been hunting this piece in particular since I was six and um, pretty much I've just had uh, I would say inconsistent success I've had success on on decent decent deer on this piece and it's really been in the last few years when I've started taking hunting seriously but um, last year the year of 2020 I you know, I guess I wouldn't really say I got too bold, too cocky, but I definitely uh, tried some new things that I thought would uh, would put me in better situations to be successful for last year, and everything just seemed to kind of kind of backfire. So, um, so basically, I'm just looking to get uh, a like-minded uh, person to uh answer these questions and i thought you know this would be a really good uh podcast maybe somebody out there is in a similar situation so it's never a bad thing uh 
you know, to pick someone else's brain, get get some insight from somebody that, that knows a thing or two. Heck yeah, man. I don't know about knowing a thing or two. I, I, I've had a lot of experiences that might be able to help. So um, I guess with that being said, let's let's get into it, man. So what? let's kick it off. Like, what's what do you got? What's your first question? All right. Well, um, so first let me go over. Let me give you a description of this piece itself. All right. Um, so where I'm from, where I actually live in Portageville, the – the lay of the land is completely flat, uh, is totally flat. Um, but the piece in particular is just over an hour North of where I live. Um, it's actually right outside of a small, really small town. Um, I think altogether, uh, acreage wise, we're looking at, um, a little over 200 acres. Um, but just, uh, try to imagine yourself, um, in a cattle pasture surrounded by very little timber and, uh, barbed wire fences. <laughs> so, um, and a lot of, a lot of cattle gates. So okay. the pastures themselves are split up into three different pastures and, uh, I've got them, uh, direction low, like, uh, name them directionally. Uh, so, uh, between the three pastures, there's a North pasture, a South pasture and an East pasture, which all, you know, uh, all, you know, the week that we can hunt. So, uh, you know, just, I guess the first question would be is, uh, you know, have you had any experience with, uh, cattle, like hunting around cattle? Yes, I have. So, we have cattle ground, pasture ground in Kansas, um, and normally the cows are out before season, but there, I have had a couple other instances where there are cattle in some different pieces that we can hunt, and you've literally got cattle walking underneath your stand. My personal opinion is deer hate cattle. Um, that is what I've experienced. Now, it makes deer... I don't necessarily think it makes them just like blow out of the country, but it, it does to me, it's pressure on the deer and they don't like to linger with them. Um, they will live there. Like you go out to our Kansas piece, uh, and in the summer and everything, you'll see deer out in the cattle pasture with the cattle, but they're not like, you know, whenever you see deer and turkeys, like, you know, feeding out in a field and they're just kind of like, ah, you know, it's a turkey, it's a deer. It's not like that. I've never seen that. You know, it's, they just kind of stay away if they can. Cattle, it's hard. It's, it's hard hunting around it because to me, it's like, you know, you might be prime time coming in this evening or whatever. It's the sun's getting low and you're feeling good. And all of a sudden you hear a twig snap, you look back and here comes, you know, 20 head of cattle, single file line right underneath your stand and you're basically pooched. I hate it. Um, that's just my personal opinion or personal opinion. So I don't know if you've seen anything like that on there. If, if it's blown into your hunts, I mean, are the cattle in there all the time, all year? It is. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's situational. Um, like right now, uh, all the pastures are insanely grown up and there's, I think the North pasture to my knowledge is the only one holding cows right now. And, I think the North pasture consists of just a little over 60 acres. And I think, like I said, there's 10 head of cow on there and throughout the summer, they stay on there. Um, but the South and the East are not holding any cows. Um, so I would, I would venture to say, and it's usually this way. Um, but we hold a, a decent amount of deer throughout the summer when the cows aren't on the land. Um, but, it never seems it never fails that around the beginning of September the the cattle farmer will come in and, and mow all the, the tall vegetation, all the all the cover, he'll mow it down and he'll disperse, uh, he'll break up the cows evenly. So there'll be anywhere from from fifteen to twenty cows on on each piece. And it just seems like whenever the cows come back 
uh, to the property right there around the season season opener, which in Missouri is September fifteenth. Uh, whenever whenever that happens, uh, it just seems like anything that you anything that you encounter throughout the summer, any scouting that you've done throughout the summer, just completely goes out the window. Um, so that that leads me to my my next question. Okay. Um, I got a question for you before you get into that. So when you talk about that, this is like 200, just a little over 200 acres and it's broke up into three pastures, how much timbers on it? Are they wooded fence rows or, you know, how much timber would you say in total, even if it's broke up, like how much, how much is on it? All right. So let's, I I do believe it. We're, I think it's right, almost right at 200, like 200 even between the three pastures and I would say probably only between the southeast and north I would say probably only 70 acres of it is wooded and then um, in inside the south pasture there's a there's a pretty big uh, uh, thick bedding area uh, that I've come to know over the last couple of years as a doe bedding area and uh, and it's really the only reason it stays thick is because the cattle farmer can't get his tractor down in the valley to uh get down there and mow it so um so yeah i would say probably only anywhere between 70 acres is actually uh wooded um and out of those woods there's not uh there's not a ton of trees to hang stands on. Okay. So, um, so basically, you know, to, to branch off that, you know, um, the farm sets up, uh, great for, for a rut farm. Um, because the neighboring, the neighboring properties all around the, uh, the permission piece, uh, you know, they, they can plant food. Uh, they don't have cattle. Uh, one, one neighbor in particular doesn't hunt and doesn't do anything with his land. So it is just insanely thick, overgrown. Um, you know, it's just a nasty, gnarly place. And I know deer, uh, bed over there. So, um, you know, so yeah. What I look at at a piece like that, when you just said everything around you is really nice and yours let's just say yours is i've never set foot on it, i've never seen it just what you've told me today so far is what i know of it i would say what you're talking about everything around you is really nice and what you have is very mediocre which is great in my eyes and that's what makes i feel like my one acre piece here in michigan so good because everything around it's awesome and my, I would say the one, one acre is probably a mediocre piece. I've made it about as best as I can make it, like as far as cover and everything goes. But I am okay with having, every time we go in and look for look at a piece, you know, it's nice to obviously look at the piece itself, but look at what's around it. Um, if you can, if your neighbors can house the deer too and have cover or food, if you're in the middle, like it sounds like you are, you're in the chips, man. Um, right. You know, you, I know a lot of people want to have deer bedding and living on them, but if, if you can't, like you just, you're basically slipping in the back door waiting for that hot dough to come around. Yeah. It can be some very monotonous sits and probably not very fun, but I'll tell you it's going to happen eventually. And, and when it does, it's going to be hold on to your seat if that makes sense. Uh, right. So I think what, what you've kind of described so far is you got a little gold mine, to be honest with you. Right. I, and, you know, I, I love the piece in particular. You know, I, like I stated earlier, I've hunted the piece since I was six years old. And, you know, it, that just speaks volumes to, uh, to, to whitetails. Is I've hunted that piece since I was six. And, um, you know, I don't really know how to put this, but I'm, I'm still asking for ways to, uh, to figure it out. Um, this just because it, you know, deer inconsistent and, yeah. um, yeah, like you said, some of the, you know, the success that I have had on the piece, um, you know, one year in particular, which was 2019 was my best year theirs. And I felt like I really honed in on, on deer movement. And I was able to do, do that through, uh, trail camera data and, uh, the, all, all the hunts were, 
the and they were they were set in early November when the action was was ramping up. Uh, they were fast, quick hunts. Like uh, you know, and I hunt up there most of the time. Uh, you know, when the season opens, I try to concentrate on does just because they're around at the beginning of the season and there's a high number of does up there. But, uh, but yeah, most of the, most of the success that I've had have been bucks chasing does underneath the stand. They've happened very quick. Um, but I mean, if that's, that's what it takes, then, uh, you know, like you said, it is, it is a little slice of heaven for sure. Yeah, definitely. So what, what was your next question then? Go on to the next. All right. So like I covered earlier, you know, I've spent up until this past year, I kind of broke away from it. But in years past, I would do a ton of preseason scouting. And um, being that we are a transition farm, you know, in your eyes, uh, do you think I'm making any mistakes by transferring from preseason to in-season scouting? Like, are you making mistakes as like putting too much merit into your preseason scouting. Right. Right. Do you think, um, do you basically, do you think it makes more sense to being that with, with everything that gets added in around the season opener, you know, uh, crops getting cut, um, cows moving in, the pastures are getting mowed, you know, um, you know, would would you concentrate more on in season scouting, or would you would you be reliant on preseason scouting? So what I like to do is, I mean, scout as much as you can, scout more than you can hunt. Um, but if you're look if you're looking at data in early July or August of a buck with a pattern, it's probably not going to be that way. Don't put a ton of merit into that. Just know that he's there. And, and then just try to figure out where he's going to want to be. The good thing with Missouri is, like you said, you guys open September 15th. So what I w- if, if I were you, what I would be doing is, and what I do here in Michigan, is that those like six days leading up to season, which mine are the end of September, because ours is an October 1st lead-in, those six days is when I really like scout a lot every day as much as I can in the evenings, I'm trying to get a pattern on for opening day. Um, so don't get, I guess what I'm trying to say is don't try to get too emotionally attached to a pattern that a deer might be doing. If it's a ways away from season, you know what I mean? It's good to know what he's doing right then and know that he's there. But if he keeps doing it and you're like in within that five day barrier of opening day, that's when I would be like starting to put more merit into it. Um, and obviously in season scouting, nothing beats in season scouting. If you can do it, if you can do it the right way and not booger a whole bunch of stuff and get in there and be undetected in season scouting, there's nothing better in my opinion. Um, but just try not to get emotionally attached. And this is what I do. Cause I did, I used to, I used to see a deer July, August into September, like, Oh my gosh, he's doing it. He's doing it. He's still here. He's daylight. He's daylight. It comes down to September 25th or 26th gone. Never see the deer again. And it's like, shit, you know, like, you know, you know, the transition's going to happen. And I just put so much time and effort. I'm not saying don't put time and effort in. I'm just saying, don't get worked up to like, this is going to happen because it probably won't unless you're in that barrier, which I call a like a five day barrier. Cause I've I've actually taken a couple deer on, you know, the first week of October in our opener, um, one in particular on opening day, uh, because of trail cam data four days leading up to the opening day. And trail cams killed that deer one hundred percent on opening night, October first in two thousand uh sixteen, I think it was. So I would say I would put more merit into in season when you find the sign, fresh, hot sign, put more merit into that and be reactive, like go if you can, but do it strategically. Don't just go in blue blazing. I'm a, I'm a passive hunter. I'm a, I'm a hunter that like sits back probably too much and I need to be a little more aggressive, but I need, I think where my downfall is I need to identify better the sign that says go now 
You know what I mean? Like instead right. of being passive and, and playing in my head, I need to be better with making that decision of go now, do it now, do it. That if that makes sense. Yes, very, very much. Um, yeah. So that, you know, my, my whole approach is and in, in the last year it's, it's trained, it's changed drastically just because, you know, I, I'm continuing to grow as a hunter. Um, I do think last year that I was, um, which this will lead me into my next question, but I really think I was too trail camera dependent. Um, yep. I was relying on trail cameras to tell me when the deer were there instead of paying attention to what was going on, like the land itself. Um, and when, when bucks would show up, which typically uh, over the last, I would say, two to three years, I've noticed a steady trend and we'll get one or two bucks that will that will start showing up around the, the season opener. Um, but it just seems like when October 1 rolls around, that buck is, is like you said, he, he's gone or he'll show up very seldomly later on in October. And most of the bucks that I see that show up on camera, when our cameras really start to become active, are anywhere from October 15th all the way up until the beginning of December. Um, so, um, so that leads me into the next question being that I'm a little over an hour away from the piece in particular, uh, you know, trying to limit my scent and my you know just um overall initiation with with the land trying to just limit factors trying to limit scent all that um would cellular trail cameras be a better idea than traditional trail cameras 100 percent. and i'm going to tell you why i live well i i live two minutes right now as as we're talking right now from the one acre farm I'm, I'm, I'm on the other side of the mile section where it's at. I'm soon going to be living on that farm. I live 20 minutes from my family farm. I've always done traditional cameras. I still have tr- traditional cameras, but the last couple of years, cell cams have been the biggest game changer for me. And the fact that I was always the guy that needs to go in and check my cameras all the time because I wanted, I was always curious. Once yeah. you get the cell cams, and you can use traditional cameras as well, but I'll, I'll explain how I use traditional cameras now. So cell cams with the little wood lots, which it sounds like yours are kind of little wood lots, wooded fence rows, a lot of pasture ground, a lot like my ag ground. They are key in my opinion. Put them in there, put them in the best spots that you think are there, put them on a scrape and monitor them. Monitor them like crazy and do not go in. I mean, do not go in unless you're strategically going in to kill or, you know, you've got a great win. Like everything has to be in your favor. I've toyed around with like pushing the limits and it has busted me every time. And what I mean by that is like, you know, I got to have perfect conditions. I might only hunt the one acre farm four times in a, in a fall. I know everybody listening is like, that sucks. You know, I want to hunt. Yes, I understand that. And I was that same mindset, but... I'm doing it on the four best times or how many it might be. And I'm seeing the best deer every time I go in there and having an opportunity at them. Um, so cell cams, yes, 100% are a game changer and having that instant data and having the instant like pictures to your phone makes me personally makes me feel like, Oh, okay. I'm, I'm getting deer on camera. I don't need to go in there. Like it helps not feeling I, like I need to go pull that card, if that makes sense. Right, and I, yeah, I really think that I really think that was the death of me last year. Was it seemed like every time that I went up there, I just felt an urge to go check my my cameras. And uh, my work schedule is a little weird, so pretty much I have I have a day off every week uh, and during season. And every time I had the chance to go up and check you know there was always anywhere from most of the time there was four days in between each day off so i would leave the piece alone for four days and when i would come back um you know mostly midday i would make rounds and uh check the cameras and i really think that's you know was where i became too 
trail camera dependent. And I really do think that if I had cell cameras in some of the places that I had uh, traditional cameras, that um, I think it would it, it obviously would have led me to kill uh, some of the bigger deer that I had on camera. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know people are really, some people are really particular about cell cams just because, you know, I know everybody's different. Everybody's got their own thing. And, uh, you know, basically, you now I just wanted, <laughs> pretty much wanted, you know, I know it just depends on how, who you ask and how many people you ask the answer to that. Cause some people like to be more of a, you know, woodsman, uh, know the woods, but when you live an hour away, uh, and you only got so many days off and so much time to hunt, you know, I, I you know, I, I think cell cams are the way to go as well. Yeah, no. And I agree. I mean, but I also agree on like not going in there and blowing your piece. So like, exactly. you know, it is one thing to say cell cams are, I draw a line where cell cams, I've talked about it on here before. When you're, when you're using them, when you got a cell cam on a bait pile or something in one corner of the field and you can see a deer's there and you got a gun and you can, you know, sneak up on them. Okay. That's to me, that's crossing the line. Like exactly. now you're, you're not using them right. Me, honestly, I'm using them. So I know I don't, I'm not blowing deer and knowing when the does and bucks are starting to come into my little pieces. Like I've, like I said, I've got a one acre acre piece and I got a four acre piece of timber. It's tiny. You know, I can throw a baseball from one side to the other on one of them, you know, and it's like you even get close to that timber, the deer are blowing out and I don't want to blow deer. I hate blowing deer. So there's a way to abuse them and there's a way to benefit from it. It's not that you're not being a, a good woodsman. That comes in the scouting in season and after season scouting, figuring out what the what deer are doing on and certain, you know, topography features and all that stuff. And it kind of goes into what I was going to say about traditional cameras for the last, uh, this will be the fourth year, how I'm using my traditional cameras. I have 218 acres in my family farm. It's big woods. It's all timber. I'm taking those traditional cameras, putting lithium batteries in them, 32 gig cards, and I'm putting them in little pockets of the farm and leaving them all year, not touching them. And I'll go back at the end of the year, pull the card. Because it's basically your eyes, you know, your eyes in the woods when you're not there just to see how the deer are using certain land features. That's how I'm using them. One year, the first year I did it, I had a camera in a transition area from what I expected to be bedding into like a staging area from, I want to say it was like October 15th through October 28th. There was like 18 different bucks were in daylight coming out of this bedding area. And I'm like, holy shit, here we go. Okay, so next year we get in there, we hang a stand, we get it all hunky-dory, and one of my buddies misses a a buck out of there, his second sit in there. And it's like, you know, so it kind of, you can kind of hone in on like, okay, this is a downtime for this area. Like from October 1st to the 15th, hardly any deer were using it. In November, hardly any deer were using it. But for some reason, in that middle October area, that was the time to be in there, and that's we stayed the hell out of there. That's just being smart too. Stayed the hell out of there. Struck when the time was right with the weather and the wind, all that stuff, and he had an opportunity. So, right, you know, that's how I'm using traditional cameras this year. Not this year. How I've been using them, and it's been working out like crazy. Right. Um, all right. So uh, that sets us up for next question on the list. Uh, so, uh, I, let's say, you know, I get to sell, sell cams and, um, I'm going, going to put them out. I, there is three bedding areas that I know of, but every single end of the land besides the bedding areas is transition, whether it be from bedding to food, from bedding to more cover, or just transitions to neighboring properties, um, would you know would you concentrate on cell cameras in the bedding areas to know when uh maybe the does are coming in uh estrus or you know because like i said bucks don't start showing up frequently on camera until the later part of october so would you focus on transitions with cell cameras or bedding areas with trail cams or cell cam i would focus on bedding areas and this is why 
with the bedding areas, that's you go in there, you 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 set it up, you put on good batteries, good cards where you don't have to go back. Okay. You put those close to the bedding, if not in the bedding, what you suspect them to be. Now you can, depending on how far the food or transition is from the bedding, you can start hunting from the food to the bedding slowly if you want. You know what I mean? And and kind of gradually moving in. Let that cell cam do the work in the bedding for you to kind of like be your eye in the sky, like what's going on in there. And when the time's right, if you need to push in, you push in right then and you kill. So that's what I would be doing. It doesn't make sense for me to put, I mean, you can put cell cams on, on food, you know, if it's a food source or whatever. I'm not against that, but in the scenario you just described, it doesn't really make sense to me to put cell cams on the food because even in early season, I like to try to kill deer early if I can. Um, even in early season, you might have a buck getting to the food after dark, you know, but he might he might be coming 80 yards from his bed and you don't know. So he's just, he will take that long to get there because he, he's smart. Um, I'd get it in tight. I would let that thing do the work, no scent in there, no nothing. And then just, if you have to gradually move in, gradually move in, start from the food, and then kind of move in. If that makes sense, that, that, that would be what I would do. Right. Um, you know, all of these, all these questions that, you know, that we're going, like I, I've given them thought and I've kind of, you know, I've drawn down like, you know, pros and cons. Um, and to me, you know, just, just getting that extra opinion, man, makes you feel better about, um, you know, maybe, you know, say, you know, what you just said is pretty much what I was thinking. Yep. And, uh, you know, just getting that second opinion, uh, definitely helps. And yeah. And like I said, I'm, uh, this is not like the Bible. This is what I do. My small acre farms, that's what I do. They're in bedding. Like I literally, my one acre right in the middle of all my hinge cutting and bedding is where my cell cam is. And on the four acre piece, that's the one, it's kind of confusing. Uh, the one acre farm, there's a one acre piece of timber and then there's a four acre piece of timber. The four acre I have two cell cams in there and one is on a a community scrape that is literally there every year has been there for the last five years. I put one there, I get every buck on there. And then on the other side, I have it on an inside corner coming into bedding. Um, and that's where I run them. And that's what has been working for me. And I don't strike. I don't go in those timber until I'm ready to hunt. And like I said, it might only be four sits that year. It literally might be that. Um, but it is just monitoring. And like I said, mine are so small that I use them for, if I'm walking in, I'm refreshing my camera to see if there's deer in there. And if there is, I'm bailing. I don't want to blow him out. It wasn't right. the right time. You know, he beat me in there. I'm I'm coming back later kind of thing. Right. Okay. So, all right. So now are you hanging or so say on this piece, are you hanging stands based on um, historical data, you know, say, uh, you know, last year's, uh, sightings, or are you paying attention to what's going on the land, uh, when season comes in and then making moves in to hang stands or, you know, what, you know, what's your thoughts on that? You know? Yeah. So what I would do, and if, and and this is what I've been doing the last two years. Well, I, I say, I'll say one year, um, I've kind of adapted or adopted, the mobile hunting game. I'm like dabbling my feet in there. But what I've found last season to be really beneficial for me, I hate hanging, like being mobile and hanging stands in the morning in the dark. Um, I hate it. So what I did going in there and what I'm going to do more this year is hanging set stands closer, possibly closer to bedding that I can hunt in the mornings, come in the back door, Deer might be coming back, filtering through me. Um, and some pieces of or my family farm, we've got some some bedding areas that I know we can get close to. I like to put those set stands there so I can just sneak in, climb up, and I'm in. But right. I do have a mobile set that's always with me that, you know, if you do have to go hang a stand, do it. So what I would do, if I were you, I would pick, you know, how many ever it is, three, four, five, whatever. I don't know how many sets you have. I would go set some set stands, get some solid set stands that might be on a really good edge, right on, you know, some bedding, transition area, 
get some sets set that you're, you know, you just want to be able to creep in and climb up with no noise. Like I would set those up and I'd have a mobile set that you can float wherever you want, whenever you need to strike. That right. that's what I, that's how I would go about it. Well, I, uh, you know, to, to branch off the, the, the mobile setup thing, you know, I, this year I've made the, the, uh, the, the cons is the, you know, effort to, uh, to try saddle hunting yep. and I tried it. Uh, actually, I actually, you know, kind of made the switch, um, late season last year. I tried hunting out of a, a saddle and really, you know, really liked it. I really liked the, uh, just, just for the mobile aspect, man, it just super easy, lightweight. Um, and I spent some time on public land there at the end of the season. So that just made the most sense. Yeah. And I knew, you know, that could also help me uh, on on this on this permission piece, just because it just seems like things change so much on this piece. You know, whether it's crop rotation or you know neighboring pressure, it just seems like anytime I hang set stands based on uh, historical data, you know, those stands are are good typically, depending on the weather and you know what time I'm I'm hunting them. But uh, it just seems like I always have to make a move. And in the past couple of years, I've had to move set stands. Maybe it, maybe it's just 40 or 50 yards, but I feel like moving them at certain times has been detrimental to my success, like, uh, you know, in, in a negative way. Yep. It's because I see deer, and I was like, okay, well, they're, they're, they're really focusing on using this, this pinch, or they're really focusing on using this trail. Well, I'll wait till they work through. And I'll get down and quietly try to, you know, tear down the set, you know, move, move over, you know, give the set some time and then come back in hours later. And, you know, typically I get goose egg, nothing, nothing happens. So, um, and I will throw this out there that on this piece, if I can, it, whether it be a morning or an afternoon set, if I can, what I consider success, if I can slip in to any of my set stands, quietly i don't bump anything if i can slip in and see more than two deer in a set i consider that a success just because the deer density is not crazy high where i'm at um so and being that it's a transition farm if i can see like i said more than two deer in the set then i can i consider it a very successful set so a couple things on when you when when you see some deer move through, and this is all hypothetical and and what I'm thinking in my head, of because I don't know what the area looks like. If you see some deer move through and and you take your stand down and you move over there, I still think in my head you're a step behind. I don't think you're getting deep enough. Um, I think you might be thinking, shit, I put I pushed the envelope too much and I blew them out. I don't think that's the case and and how you're describing it. I just think you're still on the fringe. I think right. maybe this year I task you to like, if that happens again, where your little guy in your head's like, no, don't go any farther, pushing a little bit more. If it's right. the right time, if you have the right wind, you know, if it's the right time. And what, but, but what I would say is when you push in and hang that stand, set it right away. Don't leave and come back. Like, okay. you know, if, if you push in, you take the stand down, you push in, hang it, set it, stay there the rest of the day. Um, cause if, you know, you might be buggering them because you're, you're taking all the time to hang it again and then you're getting back down, you're leaving and then you're coming back. It's always the first time in. You hear that a lot. First time in's the best time, man. Exactly. I'm telling you, if you get in there, maybe push the envelope a little bit more. I mean, listen to your your little guy on your shoulder a little bit too, but you know, do something a little ordinary ordinary or out of the ordinary that you might not do push in 30 yards farther you know try to find a little bit of sign or maybe an edge or something like that hang right there and you know sit sit it hang it and sit it that's what i would do right and so and i think you know which which you know you said you're you're you were more on the passive side yep you know more of a sit back you know, play the weather, play, you know, play that. And I think as a young hunter, I've, I've grown 
to want to be in the stand as much as I can. And really, I think, you know, after the year I had in 2019, I thought I could do it again uh, last year. But I think, you know, being in the in on the piece in particular too much also uh, greatly affected me. 100%. Um, so I would say most of the, you know, most of the greater hunts that I've had have always been around uh, cold fronts. Um, you know, I've listened to quite a few podcasts where they say that, you know, it really doesn't have a, a huge effect on deer, but it just seems like for people like me who hunt on permission pieces that are on the transition side of things, cold fronts are, are great. And, and actually what I wrote these questions down on, uh, it's actually like a, a hunt log of mine where I logged my hunts over the last couple of years. And it just seems like those mid October cold fronts on that piece are are insane i've actually most of the deer that i've seen in a weekend uh it was right around 30 deer in, in two days and that's you know o- overall four four different sits um and i really feel like cold fronts are are big on transition pieces and i know that's a stretch uh I, you know obviously not a biologist or anything but that's just my personal uh experience i feel like you know for people who have food or hunt around food that they might have a little different of an opinion, but, um, you know, basically that's just my opinion. I, I couldn't agree more. And the reason why is because I have the same scenario. What you're, you're explaining a carbon copy of my one acre piece here in Michigan, a cold front mid October is dynamite. Now right. I will, I will go against the grain a little bit and I've killed a good buck in Missouri on a warm front where it's been brutally cold for seven to 10 days, it literally jumps up 30, 40 degrees. And it was January 14th. I think it was 14th, 13th or 14th. One of those days, it was brutally cold and snow on the ground. I was seeing deer, wasn't getting an opportunity. Wasn't seeing a ton of deer. Uh, It jumped up to like 60 some degrees that day. And I even thought like, why am I going hunting? went out and killed a great buck that night. Deer were moving like crazy. Saw more yeah. deer. They were earlier on the food that night. Now that's late season, but still I've had warm fronts work as well like that. You know, just a big jump in temperature or a big drop in temperature. But I agree. A cold front in October, I shot a deer here. I've said it on the podcast. As I, I named the deer Jim Habit. Shot him on October... Is 10th or the 12th? I can't remember. Um, but it was a morning hunt. I was on the edge of a bean field in, on the one acre farm. I watched him come out. It was colder than sin. It had not, it just, it was, I can't remember what day of the cold front it was. It was like right on the front end of the cold front. And I watched him walk from 400 yards away from me, come to 35 or 32 or 35 yards, and I shot him right there. Um, right. And it, honestly, I think it was because it was a cold front. I honestly do. Right. Um, okay. So, like, I mean, I like how we're setting this up because it seems like, you know, each question that I ask, it, it, you know, I don't have to, like, just be like, oh, well, you know. Transition. It's all flowing. So, like I stated previously, you know, most of our cameras, they light up around mid-October. Uh, and they stay hot, you know, up until – just the, the dog days of the rut, like the, the, when bucks are on lockdown and, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of those that aren't with bucks yet. You know, it kind of dies off in mid November, but it picks up towards the later half of November, uh, and into the beginning of December. So would you think it's wise to limit the amount of pressure up until historically bucks start moving in, play the weather around mid October or would you scout all the way up until bucks start making that transition? So I always scout, scout from a distance. Um, keep your pressure low, scout from a distance. Something that I, I've been doing the last couple of years and, and what I did last year, and I think I was a day late and a dollar short, is I told myself I wasn't going to hunt the one-acre farm until I had a buck, a shooter on camera in daylight. Well, that happened on October 2nd. My cell cam goes off in right in the middle of the one acre. My number one and two shooters are last light, but I could have killed them with camera light 
if I was in the stand and I was on my family farm. And I'm like, crap. So, but I told myself, I'm not going to push in and hunt it yet until I get something on camera. So when I did that, I pushed in on the right days though. It wasn't like I went the next morning because it wasn't the right day. I didn't have a good wind the next day, I remember. Um, honestly, the, the weather wasn't starting to get good for me for like another week. And it was tough. It was tough holding off. But what I did is I can scout that farm from a distance. I can get on uh, in my truck from the road on glass and just watch. And that's what I would do. And I got another picture of a shooter buck on like October 12th. And I moved in. I pushed in. And on October 19th, I missed my number two shooter uh, that night. And I had a stretch of like four days. I saw my number one, two, and three shooters in daylight. Had one at 80 yards. I missed one and had one at 200 yards and watched him breed a doe for like 36 hours. So I guess my whole thing to that is don't just push in when you don't have any data or not. I shouldn't say data, but you know, don't push in just to push in. That's right. my opinion. Push in when you know you have hard, the the weather's got to be right. The wind's got to be right. right. I mean, that that's rule number one, but also I've made the mistakes forever for the longest time. Cause I wanted to hunt. I wanted to, I was the guy that wanted to be in the stand every morning, every night. And I still kind of am, but in my older age, I'm kind of like getting more like stay back until something happens. And, you know, right when I get that first picture or whatever, okay, something's happening. Something's going on. You might go in there and you might not see a buck or a a deer in daylight for a week, but, you know, you kind of got to push it if you have to. But like I said, make sure the the weather's right. Right. I I think my approach will be definitely different this year. I think – you know, based on uh, historical trail camera data and, you know, the conversation that we're having now, um, I've kind of got some public land pieces that aren't too far away from. Yeah, great idea. Uh, right. So uh, that aren't too far away from uh, this permission ground. I think, you know, just because, you know, whenever I'm off work, uh, I have to be doing something. I, I can't, you know, I can't sit around. I can't, you know, be at home looking at all my hunting gear. If, 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 if it's season, I have a day off. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, now with the, the newborn, I was going to say, uh, it's going to change this fall cause you got a newborn. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, which, I mean, we've already got, you know, all that stuff, daycare, all that good stuff. And my wife teaches. So, um, you know, she'll be at work, uh, the baby will be at daycare. Uh, most of my days off are in the middle of the week, which is another thing. Um, I think that that tremendously helps me as well. Um, uh, I, that's that's going to be my approach this year. I'm going to spend uh, probably, you know, Missouri's opener September 15th. So I would like to probably the first month of season on my days off, you know, just just branch out, uh, grow as a hunter on public land, um, you know, scout public land, hunt public land, and then uh, when my cameras start showing that uh, maybe you know I've got a few deer that I'm that I'm hoping for sure return to. Uh, our permission ground and once those deer start showing up make that transition and hunt hunt when the times are right it's a great plan man and honestly like i said that five day buffer leading up to season you know or you could even stretch it to three days if you get a deer on glass where you're looking and you see him daylighting coming into season pounce on him man go i mean go right then and I, I say this, and I always say I'm going to hold back, but I've got two farms as well. I've got my family farm that I like to kind of start at. Um, not that I don't care that I'm going to blow deer up there. It's not that. It's like it's big timber, so there's more uh, opportunity, different places to go, different trees to see, if that makes sense. So I'll start up there, and then once I get that trigger you know, on the one acre, I'm pushing in because I think the deer are less tolerable over there because it's so small, if that makes sense. So right. it's hard to, like, October 1st gets here, yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw a sit or two somewhere. You know, I want to get in the tree. You're, you've been not hunting forever, so it's like, I'm just not saying don't go hunt, but, yeah, if you got public land, shit, go hunt some public land. But if you right. do have a deer showing on September 15th or leading up to it, a couple days leading up to it, go pounce on him. Right. Um, all right, what are we, uh, what are we looking at on 
We're at oh, 51 minutes right now. So if you've got, I don't know how many questions you got left, but if you got one or two questions, I say let's cover those. So maybe pick Actually, out a couple questions that you definitely want to go through. All right. Okay. So here's a, here's just a scenario. Um, okay. So say uh, where it's, it's middle of November, just, uh, you know, I've, I've hunted, say you've hunted up until Missouri's rival season. And the way my piece sets up, every neighboring property except for the elderly man that doesn't hunt but every other piece of property will be hunted hard uh when when the rifle season opens up um are you still uh hunting during missouri's rifle season or are you taking that time away maybe going to some other public land pieces giving your piece a break uh that way deer feel comfortable so after rifle season you can slip back in or are you full throttle uh, you know, applying this, you know, not really the same amount of pressure, but are you going to play off neighboring pressure during that time? So, and from what I know of uh, Missouri, their gun season is a lot like Michigan's gun season. Michigan's gun season's on November 15th every year. Every year, right. it doesn't matter what day it falls on, it's on the 15th every year. Um, what I am doing is Usually I'm sitting, if I'm home, I'm sitting with my wife and we'll hunt opening day with a gun um, and so on and so forth. But what I like to do is if you can bow hunt, I don't, can you bow hunt during rifle season in Missouri? Yep. Okay. So yep. if you can bow hunt, what I, what I know of, of Missouri, it's the orange army. You know, it's just yep. like Michigan. There's hunters everywhere. A lot of guys traditionally in Michigan you know, they'll hunt the morning, then they'll get up and walk around or go back to camp. And then they're going back out in that evening, that midday, midday is where it's at. I feel like, like get, if, if you know, your neighbors are up and moving around, kicking deer around, you know, it's, it's hard to say, I'm going to take the morning off of opening day rifle season, or, you know, it's tradition. It's really hard to say that, but you know, maybe hunt all day. But what I'm saying, that midday, in my experience, has been, like, crazy to see. Like, the deer the deer just show up because people are getting them up, moving around, and I'm, you know, playing off other people's pressure, if if that kind of answers your question. That's what I would try to do. Yeah, yeah, that does. Because uh, I know some people, you know, some people are really passive during Missouri's rifle season. You know, some people like to take their, their piece and leave it alone if they haven't killed anything, just because, you know, if deer – you know, getting bumped around on neighboring properties, you know, maybe they'll comfortably use uh, their property or this property in particular. But in years past, I've always kept my foot on the throttle. And it just seems like, you know, the deer sightings are few and far in between after rifle season. Sure. Um, and then especially since we can't, you know, plant anything, all the food is on neighboring, you know, it gets really, really tough to uh, to hunt deer after that, that you know, second rut in, at the beginning of December. Yep. Um so, you know, I know it's hard to be passive, especially in November, because anything can happen. But, you know, it was just one of those things I was on the fence about. Um, so that definitely makes sense. And and last year, I actually made the switch to to bow hunting full time. Uh, you know, so even during Missouri's rifle season, I still still bow hunted and uh, ultimately cost, you know, cost me a deer or two. I mean, I didn't miss, <laughs> but but of course, they were out of range and moving you know, pretty quick, but, um, so yeah, that was, uh, that was one, that was one question that I had okay. and, um, so now, yeah, I think, you know, we pretty much covered everything and cool. then, well, uh, I guess to, to top that off, you know, so say, you know, say we're, um, just based off historical data after after probably the first seven days of december the action just dies down the trail cameras go dead uh mid-december all the way until the end of season so i mean would you would you try to push the envelope get as close to uh you know neighboring food if you could or are you gonna spend your time on uh public land trying to hunt a uh, public land book you know what, what what would you do so you're talking in late season december january that time because you guys go to like second week of january right right january 15th closes yep. for yep. us so i killed a buck on the 13th of january and the 14th of january 
a year apart in Missouri. So I have, and they're two totally different scenarios, which this is going to play in well um, for your question. The first year, I killed them on food. I was on food. Um, I hunted a transition for the week that I was there, and I was seeing deer, and that that was the that was the warm front that I got. I took the stand down, moved right on the edge of a winter wheat field where timber meets a winter wheat field, and I killed him two hours before dark. Walked 15 yards, and I shot him. Right. The next year, I was hunting literally a cornfield that we had uh, that we left standing corn, like kind of carved out. Um, the farmer, we had him leave some corn and there was like a carved out bowl out in front and we put a ground blind in the corn looking back at the timber and all the deer were coming in. So I hunted that for a couple days, seeing deer like crazy. The only shitty thing about that was I was blowing deer every time I was getting out of the blind at night, yep. you know, so yep. that was, that was sucked. I did have an opportunity at the deer that I ended up killing on that field. I was filming myself. I couldn't get him to stop. Um, there was a bigger deer that showed himself one night uh, that was just at the last light. Um, and that was the only time I saw him. So I'm like, I got to change something up here. So I had the ability to be able to get around, get in the timber, come in the back door where I suspected these deer bedding. Right on the edge, it was where it, I was literally 30 yards off of an edge where cedars meet hardwoods. And I was sitting in the hardwoods looking at the cedars. And the buck that I ended up killing came out three hours before dark. And he was heading to where my blind was in the food. And it was, oh man, as a crow flies, probably thousand yards from where I was sitting in the cornfield from where I killed him. Probably I would say at least that, maybe a little farther. And I ended up shooting him right there in the edge of bedding. So two different scenarios. Um, you kind of got to play that the best you can, but, uh, I've had success doing both. Personally, I would probably start on the food. I would try to get as close in your situation. You know, you got a lot of, a lot of, uh, food around you. I would get as close to the food as you can, but if you're not seeing what you want to, you got to get thick. You got to get into the thick stuff. Um, right. so it's kind of like six, half one does the other. What do you do? But I'm mean, food's king in late season, you know. Right. But I do feel like deer don't tolerate as much pressure later in the season as well. They're kinda they're stressed, you know, they're they've just went through a full season of pressure. So I feel like they're kinda less tolerable tolerable to pressure. Um hopefully that answers your question, but it it's kind of six half one dozen the other. Personally though, the first thing I would do is I would go to food. Right. I think uh yeah, in years past, like, you know, once once the trail cameras die and, like, you know, bucks aren't, you know, the bug sightings drop tremendously, I start noticing, uh, you know, the does grouping back up. And once those does group back up, you know, uh, it just seems like the bug sightings are just way down. So, uh, you know, the property sets up, it allows me to do both, um, that I can dive into some really thick, thick stuff in the mornings maybe catch a bug coming back from uh yep from, for sure. from feeding and then i can get you know you know i don't really like to hug uh really like to hug fences but you know the property is surrounded by uh you know to the south there's a hunting club that has food plots and then in the north it's all ag ag fields north of our property so uh you know there's you know a couple couple hundred acres in between uh, you know, that, that we can hunt. So, um, you know, I think if I can, you know, play that, um, uh, I should be all right. And then pay attention to, uh, trail cams, which like I said, you know, they go kind of dead. So I don't really know what, what the, what the bucks are doing, uh, that time of year. It just seems like they all disappear for some reason. But, and, and that might be a time too, is to take those cell cams or cameras and really start dispersing them in different spots, you know, just throw like cast a big net. Uh, and put your cameras somewhere where you might not have put them. Go find some sign. Um, you know, maybe if you have snow on the ground, go find where the most concentrated, you know, tracks are or, you know, where their com community scrapes might be. Uh, I have had deer come out to scrapes. They're not really pawing them or anything, but they still 
are kind of nosing them and everything, or go right into the thick. I mean, in your, your scenario, you don't have any food. It's all in the neighbors. Maybe you go right to the thick and put them on some edges and, and where some, if you have some pinches, put them in different areas and just, you might learn something in the fact of like, man, I didn't even think deer would be here. You know, the deer might be hanging on the south side of your farm all fall, but then late season, they're in the north for some reason. Figure that right. out, you know. Right. Um, yeah, man. Uh, I had, you know, pretty pretty good stretch of questions that I've struggled with uh, over the past couple of years, and I think we, uh, we've, we've knocked everything out. Cool, man. Uh, on my list, I had a couple of things uh, highlighted at the beginning that we went over, so uh yeah man well sweet i uh, I, I i appreciate you reaching out to me and wanting to do this because this is something i've never really i've done q a's and stuff like that but usually it's from questions that people bring in through social media i've never really had anybody on to like ask the questions so that, that was kind of cool and I, i'd like to do another part to this after season to see if you know how you implemented things and what you did and and how successful you were and maybe do the, well, shit, this didn't work, but this did, you know, I would like to, maybe we do know for sure. We need to do that. Like end of season, you know, we need to regroup and do that again, just to do a part two, just to see how it all unfolded for you this fall. And I think that'd be really cool. Right. So, yeah, I'm actually like, you know, I basically wrote down like, you know, highlights of, of everything that you said out, next to the questions i'm going to keep this sheet of paper and it's well i'm going to keep this in my logbook and uh you know basically whenever i when i encounter something that goes along with uh anything that you answered i'm going to just kind of pencil it in and uh that way you know it helps me follow up like hey that that's you know that shit worked and hey you know that wasn't a good idea so uh so yeah man uh, we can definitely uh do that and then uh for sure. Yeah, that sounds really good. Cool, man. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. We're going to wrap this up. Um, yeah, I, I had a fun time. Hopefully you don't find out that I was just all full of shit and nothing worked. <laughs> Hopefully there's some them pluses there. But, uh, hey, I know you got a new baby, and uh, now it's dad life. So congratulations on the new baby as well, and, and good luck to you this fall. Appreciate it, man. I, uh, like I said, I had a lot of fun too. Um uh, this is uh, the sec- just the second podcast that I've ever done, man. And it's uh, actually very, very addicting now. Like, uh, you know, talking with, you know, like-minded people, you know, I've been a huge fan of, uh, of your show in particular for, you know, a little over a year now. It's just how long I've been, you know, dive, you know, diving into the podcast side of things. And, you know, I just want to say for, you know, any young, younger hunters like me, I'm, I'm only 23. So, uh, you know, anybody that, that hears this and is younger, man, you know, definitely, you know, reach out, you know, most, most of the people that you encounter in the hunting, hunting industry want to help, um, you know, and definitely, you know, if anybody hears this and, uh, maybe has a question for me, I, you know, I, I, I'll answer it the best I can. Um, but yeah, don't be afraid to, afraid to reach out. Cool, man. I couldn't set it, couldn't have said it better myself. I got no secrets and I'm an open book. So, Anybody has any questions or anybody else out there listening that wants to do this, hit me up, man. Hit me up on uh, Instagram or Facebook, and let's get something going. So, Tanner, thank you very much, man, and I uh, can't wait to do, do this again. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. And there you have it. Tanner, thank you very much, man, for coming on and doing that. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. That was kind of cool. If, Like I said earlier, if, if you guys, if anybody out listening and has some questions and wants to run them by me and, and get some you know, different opinions, hit me up. Let's do it. I, I kind of like doing this. So, um, yeah, with that being said, thank you guys for all the support. Thank you for the downloads. Please go to iTunes, leave a five-star rating, and leave a written review. That would be greatly appreciated. And don't forget, we'll be right here next week on the Fall Podcast. Mm-hmm.